This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today, between now and the news at one, you're going to meet a pastoralist from the Northern Goldfields who's pretty excited about the proposed changes to land tenure here in Western Australia. And he thinks it really does open some great opportunities for carbon farming, particularly in parts of the rangelands. Also today, you'll catch up with um, a thought, a suggestion, I guess, from Fortescue Metals' Andrew Forrest, who's saying that the diesel fuel subsidy should be scrapped and the money that the federal government gets from that should be redirected to green energy projects. What do you make of that, I wonder? You can be part of the conversation here on the Country Hour. 0448922604 to text through and have your say this afternoon. And kicking off with some weather information for you, there was quite a bit to talk about over the weekend, wasn't there? A lot of storm activity across the state over the weekend. I've heard reports of strong winds, hail in some places, and there were quite a few regions that got a lot of rain. What happened at your place? Any damage at all or everything's okay? The text 0448 to share what happened at your place, the sort of weather you were experiencing over the weekend. Wine-producing regions received a lot of rain. Uh, for example, in Mount Barker in the Great Southern, uh, 81 millimetres in parts there, and some Franklin properties got up to 58 millimetres. Now, the wet might cause a few disease problems for the grapes and the vines. And some grain-producing regions also got a lot of rain. Uh, Richard Hudson will be in the studio here to talk you through those details just after half past 12 today. But some Gascoigne properties received some much-needed rain over the weekend. David Hammerquist is from Mount Augustus Station, which is about 500 kilometres east of Carnarvon. And he got 41 millimetres of rain in his gauge over the weekend. Glad a few more people have had a bit of rain. And you know, over, over to the east of us, over at Minga Springs and Three Rivers, they had a couple of good falls as well. So those guys have missed out for the last couple of years. So I'm glad to see it being spread around. How much rain have you had this year so far? And you know, how much was this rain needed for you guys? Before this rain event, we've just we've had just shy of 260 mils for the year, so that sort of takes us up to nearly 280 mils, which is above our average for the year. Considering in the previous year we only had 150 mils for the whole 12-month period, so although it's been a little bit since we had our last bit of rain, um, feeds hung on very well, and this rain will sort of get things going again for the next summer season. Yeah. So can you paint me a picture of? How the property's looking at the moment? In in reasonable terms, um, you know, you, you always want more feed, but our stocking rates aren't aren't huge at the moment because of the dry that we we did have. So feed's still abundant, and the cattle are doing quite well. So has it been a pretty good year for you guys? I mean, cattle prices are pretty phenomenal at the moment. Yes, it has, um, and you know, it's, it's one of those sort of lucky 
things where prices and 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 kilos matched up you don't often get you usually get reasonable prices when you got skinny cattle and when you got fat cattle you get bad prices but it's one of those years where the where the stars aligned and we got you know good prices and our cattle were in in, in reasonable condition hopefully that continues on to uh next year if long things don't crash and burn and the summer holds up and we're about to have another good season and try and get ahead for once. David Hammerquist from Mount Augusta Station speaking to Georgia Hargreaves. And more details on the rain for you just after news headlines at half past 12. Richard Hudson going through those details for you right across Western Australia. Nine past 12 here on the Country Hour. And one of the biggest beneficiaries of the diesel fuel subsidy is calling for the government to scrap it. The diesel fuel subsidy or rebate is for industries that use fuel away from government-maintained roads. So harvesting on your own farm, for example, is just well, one example. Fortescue Metals' Andrew Forrest says his company claims $300 million per year under the subsidy and wants the government to redirect it to green energy projects. President of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson, says scrapping the subsidy would punish farmers. We agree with Andrew Forrest on a lot of things about the development of new technology and the development of renewable fuels and the um, basically options for farmers to use less diesel because we always want to use less diesel. But I would totally disagree with Andrew Forrest that this is a subsidy because it's not. Um, it's a rebate on an excise that was applied back in the 1920s, Warwick, for road funding. And since that time, it's been expanded and extended to industries that use diesel fuel as part of their businesses. And most people don't understand that it's not just miners and farmers that we're talking about here. It's actually you know, regional hospitals, aged care homes, tourism operators, fishing boats up and down the coast, emergency services vehicles, tugboats, all of those sorts of, and, and any processing facilities in, in, in regional Australia too, of course, any business basically that uses diesel fuel as a input, a business input, doesn't drive, doesn't use it to drive on, on federal or state or local owned roads, can claim this excise back. It's semantics though, isn't it? Talking about whether it's a subsidy or a rebate. The, the fact well, is there's a charge on fuel that you don't have to pay because you're not using the roads. Oh, I don't know that it's semantics. I reckon it's an important distinction because subsidies are there to support industries and this sub, this rebate is in no way supporting the, the diesel fuel industry. What it is is acknowledging that the, the, historically, um, you know, it was a rebate on an excise that was applied to build roads and maintain roads. Um, it, this is not to support the diesel fuel industry. Farmers are walking away as much as they possibly can um, from using diesel on farms because it's expensive and we want to see this next generation of technology develop. But in the meantime, you know, if we pull it away, then really it will have an enormous impact, not just on the family farmers, but also on regional Australia. Why do you think then that Twiggy Forrest, who says he receives around $300 million in benefit from this subsidy or rebate every year, is now calling for it to be phased out? Well, look, you know, what, what applies to the big end of town? You know, Mr Forrest is in the big end of town, which is fine. You know, that's where he operates. If that's fine for the big end of town, great. 
knock themselves out. But when we're talking about regional hospitals, regional aged care homes, tourism operators up and down the coast, family farms, <laughs> emergency services vehicles, processing regionally based processing facilities, tugboats, gosh, the list goes on then I think this will have an enormous impact on those sorts of businesses and an enormous dollar value input on regional Australia. But I also believe it's starting a conversation that is based on absolute the wrong information. This is not a subsidy. Um, you know, Australian farmers are the least subsidised in the world pretty much. And this rebate is in no way a subsidy. And I think we need to be very careful about that conversation as we think about the options for how we move towards you know, a lower emissions future. Those lobbying against this subsidy, though, love claiming that it is a subsidy and say that fossil fuel industries are being subsidised by rebates like this and it could mean billions back to the budget if the government scrapped it. Does that frustrate you? Talk is cheap, Warwick. Uh, we like to stick to the facts and, look, it doesn't <laughs> it, it does frustrate me, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, we need to stick to the facts. We need to continually keep making sure that that people are aware of you know what these issues are and the facts surrounding them. This is being raised within six months of a federal election and it has been an issue fought on election promises in the past before. Are you prepared for a fight over this in the lead up to the next federal election? This seems to be unfortunately one issue that is always on our agenda and we hope and we will continue to advocate strongly both sides of the parliament, in fact, all sides of parliament, to understand why this rebate is so important to regional Australia and to family farms. And in the lead up to this election, it looks like there won't be any change to that position at all. President of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson, with Warwick Long. It is 14 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Quite a few of you are keen to have your say on this this through on the text. Tell Twiggy to stick to his mining and we will stick to farming. We don't drive farm vehicles on the road, so why should we pay fuel tax? Why doesn't Twiggy dip into his pocket to pay the money to green energy? Butt out, Twiggy, says one text. This from Bruce in Broome and a few of you keen to make this point. The diesel fuel rebate is a rebate. Please do not repeat the lie that it is a subsidy. And this too, the diesel fuel rebate is not a subsidy. It is the rebate of a tax, just like a personal tax refund. This too, Twiggy needs to leave. And from Mike, Twiggy needs to keep his thought bubbles to himself and leave ag issues to those whose livelihood depends on it. He has made his money from mining and lots of it, says Mike. Have your say too. There's a few more to get through. So join the queue on the text 0448 922 604 16 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Angema and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. News headlines for you at half past 12. And a pastoralist from the Northern Goldfields says proposed changes to WA's Land Administration Act will open opportunities for carbon farming in parts of the rangelands. The proposed reforms will see millions of hectares of pastoral and unallocated crown land unlocked for renewable and diversification projects around the state. Dave McQuee runs Bulga Down Station, northwest of Leonora, and says the changes are great news for pastoral businesses. 
carbon farming is a, is certainly a, a very you know, modern thing at the moment. There is other forms of income that can be earned through the pastoral industry as well, which at the moment you know, technically aren't allowed. So any reforms that come along that can actually open up a, a new stream of income or, or a diversification or anything like that has got to be a, a bit of a winner in the rangeland, especially you know, some of the pastoral leases uh, throughout the rangelands are probably a bit too small and a bit unviable, but it certainly opens it up for them to try other streams of income and, and do different things. And how important has that been for you at your property, Dave? Tell us a bit about what you've been doing with carbon farming. We were one of the initial um, applicants, I guess, for one of the trial places for carbon farming. So that was uh, three years ago now that we got tangled up with that. Last year was our first year of, of actually seeing an income offered. The income stream that came in was was reasonably substantial. It's, it's changed our bottom line dramatically. It's brought what would have been possibly a small operation up into quite a large operation. Now it's it's it gives us the, the the firepower and the ability to be able to put more money into looking after the rangeland, you know, regenerating the rangeland, uh, lightening off stocking numbers, uh, bringing overall overall age of machinery and infrastructure down quite a bit, so that we're we're running a more viable, I guess, friendly operation. Full stop. And Dave, I suppose a lot of people listening will be going, that all sounds really wonderful. You've already been doing all these things. So how how do the reforms to this land tenure package that are being proposed potentially help other people get into the carbon industry? What kind of barriers do they lift up? Some of the barriers that, that are there are, are actual um, the lease of the time, time of the lease to run. Uh, some properties are under a 25-year um, lease time, in which case they're not eligible because the, the, the shortest amount of time you can do a carbon project for is 25 years. You can go 25, 50 or 100 years, I think it is. Yeah, realistically, if, if someone does the groundwork and convert it over to a 50-year lease or whatever it's going to be called, there's no reason they couldn't actually do a 50-year carbon project. But certainly anyone that's below 25 is now will now be eligible. A lot of people, or some people, have sort of looked at it and thought, oh, we've only got 30 years to run our lease. I don't know whether we want to lock ourselves in for that. So if you've, if you've got a, you know, you've got a 20, 28 or a 29-year lease time to run, you possibly might be a bit hesitant about putting a, a 25-year carbon project over the top of it. But if you've got 50 years to run, you could put a 25-year carbon project over the top of it, knowing that... You're only really doing that for half of the time of your lease to run. Dave McQuee, who's a pastoralist at Bulga Downs, northwest of Leonora in the northern goldfields, speaking to Courtney Fowler. And if you're a little unsure what the Land Administration Act and these proposed changes will mean to you, there will be an information session held on the 15th of December in the city, Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre. You can read more about the story. It's online for you now. Search Land. And tenure, ABC. 20 past 12. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the federal government has announced it plans to lift some travel restrictions, including the return of backpackers. As part of today's announcement, tourists on working holidaymaker visas will be able to enter Australia from the 1st of December without needing a travel exemption. Now, all travellers will need to have proof of their vaccination status and return a negative COVID-19 test 
three days before entering Australia. As of last month, there were almost 3,000 people overseas holding a working holidaymaker visa to enter this country. Now, the announcement is still subject to state requirements. So... Not much changes here in Western Australia, really, as a result of the Prime Minister's decision to lift some of these travel restrictions. Here's the Premier, Mark McGowan. Well, what he's doing is particularly directed at New South Wales and Victoria because they have COVID rife in their communities, so therefore bringing people from overseas without restriction probably is understandable in that context. But in Western Australia, we don't have COVID, so we're in a very, very different position. We'll get to having students come in, international tourists and the like. We'll organise big campaigns to attract them. Uh, But it won't be to the new year to when we get to very high levels of vaccination. So we have to get to those high levels of vaccination before this happens. So uh, if people want to travel overseas, if they want to travel over state, if they want foreign tourists and foreign students to come back, we have to get people vaccinated. I'll just say to... um, I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding out there amongst some of the um, people refusing to get vaccinated. I want them to understand... If they're not vaccinated, they're not going to be able to travel overseas. They're not going to be able to travel interstate. The Bali holidays won't happen. The travel to Sydney and Melbourne will not happen. So it's not just the consequence of potentially having to find a different job. It's also the consequence of never being able to travel overseas or interstate again. The Premier, Mark McGowan, speaking to the media just earlier today. 22 past 12. The tiger prawn season has wrapped up in northern Australia a little bit earlier this year with trawlers told to pull up nets on Saturday. Matt Bran was down at the duck pond in Darwin this morning just to watch the last catches of the season getting unloaded. I'm I'm Bill West, uh, returned to port yesterday at the end of the fishing season. It's all over, we're unloading today and then be putting the boat away. List of jobs to do and final clean-up and heading home. It hasn't been a good year because of the below average catches. Season has finished 10 days early, normally runs till the 30th of November. Just another year, not one to go down on record. So numbers down a little bit, what are you putting that down to? It's cyclic. I've been driving here for 40, over 40 years and there's highs and lows, you can't point the finger, very much relative to the conditions of nature and, and everything else. So, You're in at port, unloading for the last time for the season. You said you're off for a break. What does that look like? I can't wait to go home. Can't wait to go home. I've got a, a lovely place in, in Queensland and yeah, go home, family, friends. And it seems like everyone can go home at the moment with all the different COVID rule changes, which must be nice. Been watching them, fingers crossed. I I get my second shot on Wednesday so that I'm I'm covered. But definitely watching everything with fingers crossed. Is it easy to keep across all that stuff when you're out at sea? Look, probably the best place to be in Australia for the last two years. It really has. There were restrictions in the early part as far as coming into Darwin, uh, going back last year and not being able to leave the vessel, but really the effect on us has been minimal. Haven't, haven't had lockdowns, haven't had to suffer any of that, so been in a good place as far as COVID's concerned. Also on board here today at the Duck Pond is Mandy, the first mate of this operation. Mandy, we'll have listeners have just got no idea what happens out at sea and what's involved in catching tiger prawns. Tell us about this last trip. 
Um, it's, it has been a trying season. Um, with the low levels of, of catch and everything, it's 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 been it's taken its toll on everybody. You're out here and you're out here to make money and you're out here to work. And when you have sort of a bit of a lull in it, it's, it becomes a little bit difficult because you know we all want to be home with our families and it's it's like having idle time. You know, and when you've got idle idle time, your head wanders and you start thinking of what you might be missing out on while you're out here. Hence why when it's busy, it sort of seems to, time seems to pass really quickly. Um, it's kind of like home out here though, because you spend so much time out here. You know, so you're going home, but you're also leaving one. That, well, that's how I feel about it, because I'm, I'm here for seven months of the year, and that's longer than what I'm at my own residence, so, yeah. It's well, nice. well, if I can just grab a quick recipe off both of you, for those who go and grab themselves some fresh tiger prawns, end of the season, what can they be doing with them, Bill? <coughs> <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask, I am. Um, they can be on the barbecue, chilli prawns, yeah, tiger prawns, the larger ones on a barbecue come out well. I actually like, um, I like prawns, but I would prefer to chop them up and mix them with bugs and make a slight fritter out of them with some parsley and some ginger, a little bit of chilli, a little bit of flour, make a patty. Yeah, absolutely delicious. Well, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today and uh, enjoy that break, eh? Cheers. Will do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I did like Mandy's idea. It sounds great, doesn't it? Mandy Blackburn and Bill West on board the MV Warlock unloading tiger prawns this morning at the Duck Pond in Darwin. 26 past 12. Well, back here in Western Australia, the fishing industry will soon have a Lost at Sea Fishers Memorial. This project started as just a simple conversation between a handful of fishermen who wanted to honour those who've shaped today's fishing industry and WA's regional coastal communities. James Paratori is a Perth-based rock lobster fisherman who's involved in this project. Yeah, so it's still very much in its infancy at the moment. We've just received uh, broad support from the peak body, the West Australian Fishing Industry Council, to support this project. It's very much a grassroots project with the project team looking at collating stories and asking for stories from the community for people who have had, you know, family members who have been lost at sea. So it's essentially a project that's just started to recognise that and it's still very much in its infancy, but we're hitting the ground running and um, already starting to get some of those stories in. So it's about acknowledging those fishermen who have been lost at sea from right across the state. That's correct. So essentially any commercial fisherman, and that includes perling, whaling, you know, all the species that have been caught over the years and then provided to the community. So it really is, a, I guess, a journey and a, and a, a you know, a storytelling exercise that does incorporate the tragedy and some of the risk issues involved with with catching fish and providing it to the local community, but also celebrating those lives and, you know, recognising how far we've come from a safety perspective as well as an industry. You know, some of the early conditions weren't great, especially in the pearling industry, but even in some of the other industries. So there's a deep appreciation, I think, as you unpack these stories and learn about them, about the conditions that were involved. You know, if you've ever bought 
uh, you know, a snapper or a jewfish or a rock lobster or some prawns. It's generally been provided by someone who's gone out and caught that for you and, you know, and in some ways has risked their lives um, to provide that. Why do you think that this particular project is just so important? Many of these tragedies have have never really been documented properly or if ever, and some of them don't, some of these lost souls don't have a resting place in many respects. So, you know, they were never found. So that's one part of it, is appreciating that what we do build, whatever that memorial is, will hopefully provide, you know, a bit of closure for those family members that, you know, lost someone to fishing. I guess that's one part. Uh, and a big part of the project. The second part is in, in is in history and storytelling, and really just you know con- connecting back with the community about where your seafood actually comes from. And there's a real story to tell, which I think hasn't been told that well in the past. But hopefully, via this sort of conduit, there will be you know a better mechanism to tell it. So it's not just about tragedy, and it's not just about lives that have been lost. It's also about the people that that are surrounded by that and that have made fishing their you know their living really. So where are you thinking at this stage that the memorial will be placed and what will it look like? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. We 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 certainly open to ideas and we are you know certainly thinking outside the square. We don't necessarily envisage this will be a physical memorial with bricks and mortar, but it might have a component of that. It's also important to realise that there already are some memorials up and down, littered up and down the coast in places like Steep Point. There's a memorial. There's a memorial in Dongra. There's a there's an obelisk there. So a couple of the first early ideas would be actually to create a memorial trail that links the regional cities, uh, regional towns, and some of those tragedies together as part of a storytelling exercise. So that's not one fixed place, but possibly many as part of a trail. And of course, just the world we're living in and the increasing digitization, we're trying to future-proof the memorial. So there's probably an aspect of, you know, some sort of online memorial or, you know, a virtual memorial is another idea that's come up already in the first sort of preliminary discussions. So Really, I mean, the actual format hasn't been necessarily agreed upon and we're open to ideas and, and at this point in time, you know, it's, it's really a blank canvas. James Paratori, who's a member of the Lost at Sea Fishers Memorial Project team, and if you'd like to get in touch with the organisers of that project, the best point of call is WAFIC, so the WA Fishing Industry Council, if you want to contribute in some way to that project. 29 to 1. And with an update from the newsroom, here's Jonathan Hopper. Good afternoon, Bell. The Premier has accused anti-vaccination protesters who abused and heckled him in Bunbury of crossing the line. Mark McGowan was escorted to his vehicle by police after attending a community cabinet town hall last night. Protesters yelled abuse regarding the government's mandatory vaccination policy, which will affect about 75% of WA workers. WA police say it's not surprising there were long queues for school leavers registering for official events in the southwest yesterday. Thousands of high school graduates queued for up to six hours to receive their wristbands and provide proof of their COVID-19 vaccination. And WA Cricket CEO Christina Matthews says she hopes to confirm by the end of this week whether Perth will host the fifth Ashes Test. The test is scheduled to be held at Perth Stadium from January the 14th, but WA won't reopen its borders until late January or early February. Thanks, Bill. Thank you so much, Jonathan. 28 to 1. Hi, my name's Lynn. I've farmed at Arthur River and I've been there for quite a while and I love listening to the country out. ABC Radio WA.
Great to have you along this afternoon. And between now and the news at one, off to Muche for a wrap of the cattle market. John Testro going through that for you. And also a reminder just to have a little bit of patience when you're out and about on the roads. You know, what is it, school holidays only, what, two, three weeks away, depending on which school you go to. And everyone keen to get out and about in the regions. It is grain harvest time and there are a lot of trucks on the road right now. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington. Is there still some rain about some parts of the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? Yeah, there is, uh, Belinda. So, um, well, most of the heavy stuff fell uh, last night um, between 20 and 60 millimetres. Um, quite um, incredible rain for this time of year, really. Um, and that was due to a low pressure system that moved in from the west coast and tracked southeast um, through the Great Southern down on the Albany coast there. Um, but now the lows tracked off um, into sort of south of Esperance at the moment. So we're just left in some uh, onshore flow, which is generating a few uh, light showers over uh, most of the southwest land division, just apart from the central west district. Um, so as I said, that low's moving away. And then uh, that we've just got uh, that uh, sort of light shower activity continuing maybe into uh, tomorrow morning just along the south coast, but probably most likely uh, just near the Esperance uh, area. And that should clear uh, later in the evening uh, as a high pressure system uh, moves its way in. Um, by Wednesday, uh, as I said, that high pressure system will start to really develop south of the state. So we'll get a weak trough developing off the west coast and temperatures along that west coast um, through the lower west and the central west will be much warmer than what we've been seeing. So um, temperatures gradually rising into the low uh, 30s there. And continuing um, on Thursday as well with that trough deepening and we'll see the warmer temperatures gradually uh, work their way uh, southwards. Um, temperatures may be warming up a, a degree or two to the mid-30s, uh, specifically through the, the central west and getting into the northern uh, lower west parts there. Um, and then by Friday, um, continuing, well, pretty much uh, a stagnant weather pattern. So the only change for Friday would be um, temperatures warming up even further, um, maybe uh, temperatures around uh, into the low to high 30s. Um, the hottest part will be around uh, the central west, but the mid-30 temperatures will probably even get into the uh, central wheat belt in, and into the lower west there. What can you see then for northern and eastern parts, Luke? Yeah, for the northern parts, well, um, there is a little bit of action, um, not on the mainland, but um, just offshore, um, sort of just well south of Christmas Island. Uh, we did have a low-pressure system affecting that area in the last uh, sort of a week or so, and it's just hanging around, and we've actually just upgraded that low-pressure system to a tropical cyclone. So um, we've named it uh, Paddy Category 1. Uh, it's around uh, 390 kilometres southeast of Christmas Island and moving very slowly, but as I said, it's not going not to affect any communities up there. It's just going to sit there for the next 24 hours and then work its way westwards where it will gradually weaken out. So it's going to be a very brief cyclone just for the next 24-hour period. Over the mainland, there is a cloud band stretching from Tropical Cyclone Paddy to the Pilbara uh, coast, so that's over central parts uh, at the moment, and uh, that cloud band extends all the way down to the interior and right through to the Eucla, and we're just seeing some showers and isolated thunderstorms in that cloud band uh, at the moment. Um, and that cloud band moves uh, eastwards uh, during today, and then by tomorrow it would have sort of contracted into South Australia, and we're just left with some uh, isolated showers and thunderstorms over the northern Kimberley and just the far eastern parts of the northern interior. 
Uh, there's also uh, quite, still quite hot through the Kimberley. Temperatures in the low 40s, specifically over the south and southwest Kimberley. So there is a severe to extreme heat wave affecting that area pretty much right throughout the week still, um, with temperatures close to 40 degrees. So um, and, that, and, and the Broome area will probably get those temperatures on the Wednesday and Thursday period where we do have uh, quite strong easterlies moving through there. Um, and it, that's pretty much the story for the, for, from Wednesday onwards. Those easterlies will really pick up just as that ridge uh, develops south of the state. And so it'll be pretty windy on uh, Wednesday, Thursday and uh, Friday mornings. And any uh, thunderstorm activity later in the week will be mostly confined to, the, to sort of the far north, Kimberley. And Luke, could you just uh, repeat the location of Tropical Cyclone Paddy, isn't it? Is that right? Mm, yeah. yeah, Paddy. Yeah, so it's... Um, 390 kilometres and uh, 390 kilometres southeast of Christmas Island. Um, so it, it is well south of the island at the moment. It's slow moving um, over the next 24 hours, and then after that, it'll, it should move, start to move west into an unfavourable environment, and it'll probably weaken back to a tropical low. So it's just a brief period where it does reach tro- tropical cyclone intensity. Okay, so it's Category One at the moment. Do you see it going beyond that or not? Uh, no, it doesn't look like it at the moment. It's just reached just reached Category 1 strength, so it may intensify slightly over the next 24 hours, but definitely not um, into that Category 2 range. All right, and back to today then. Any warnings this afternoon? Uh, we've got just got the usual strong wind warnings for um, various parts of the coast. There's too many to list, but um, if people want to know, have a look at the website. And we've got that tropical cyclone advice out for TC Paddy. And uh, we've also got a fire weather warning out, uh, extreme for the north interior and then severe for the, uh, for the Pilbara coast. Luke, thank you so much. There was a bit to get through this afternoon, 22 to 1. ABC Radio, Fire Ban Information. Yeah, there's a total fire ban today for the Shire of East Pilbara. So during a total fire ban, you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air. That includes solid fuel barbecues, pizza ovens and campfires. And you must have an exemption permit to do any hot work, including welding, grinding and soldering. No off-road driving. That includes quad bikes and motorbikes. And farm vehicle work is only allowed where there's no harvest and vehicle movement ban. So there's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban on the website of Fire and Emergency Services. And there's also a map of the affected areas at emergency.wa.gov.au. So just repeating, a total fire ban is in place today for the Shire of East Pilbara. But just going through the rainfall totals over the weekend, this is 9am Friday right through to 9am today, starting up in the north and in the eastern forecast districts as well. In the Kimberley, Elquestro 17 and Columbaroo 6. In the Pilbara, Chela Plains 15, Exmouth 7, Karajini North 5, Learmonth Airport 10, Mount Stewart 6 and Newman 5. And then in the Gascoigne, Bulga Downs 8, Bulu Downs 24, Q5, Dulgunna 46, Meekathara 14, Mingar Springs 47, Minina 29, Mount Clare 25, Mount Vernon 30, Neds Creek 57. 
Tangadee 44, Three Rivers 65 and Cherry Creek 30. And then in the interior, Carnegie 11, Canoe 67, Granite Peak 28, Prenty Downs 21 and a bit in the goldfields as well, Fraser Range 15, Kurawalli 9, Laverton 14, Linster 21, Leonora 5, Norseman 6 and Weibo 33. In the Eucla, Balladonia 9, Eucla itself 23, Forest 20 and Mundrabilla Station 12. Nothing worth reading out on the islands. And then in the Southwest Land Division, in the Central West, New Norcia received five. In the Lower West, Bickley, Bindoon and Gijiganup all received five mils. Minston Park, six. Mullubini, nine. Moondar Brook, Pierce of the Raft Base, Pinjarra South and Rollystone all received five. And Whiteman Park, 11. Then in the southwest, a bit to get through. Aldervale, 11. Bailing Up, Beetle Up and Bridgetown, 13. Boyne Up North, 7. Bunbury, 10. Cape Lewin, 9. Cape Naturalist, 5. Carlotta, 12. Collie, 7 to 8 mils across two locations. Kawaram Up, 8. Darden Up received between 5 and 14. That's across three locations. Donnybrook, 5 to 8. Ferguson Valley, 27 to 34. Four acres, 16. Happy Valley Alert Station, 10. Hentybrook, 21. Carriedale, 5. Manjumup, 10 to 12. Margaret River, 8. Main Up South, 16. McAlinden and Millian Up, 9. Newbick Up, 11. Newlands, 7. Northcliffe, 21. Pemberton, 12. Quinnan up, 9. Ravenscliff Alert Station, 5. Scott River, 26. Shannon, 17. Stiles Tower, 12. Thompson Brook, 19. Tonebridge, 22. Walpole Forestry, 32. Warner Glen, 17. Willie Abrupt, 10. Windy Harbour, 18. And Yanmar, 5. Then in the Southern Coastal Region, Albany Airport, 29. Amalup, 26. Shane Beach, 27. Chillin up, 9. Denbarker, 49. Denmark received 43 to 45 mils. Erin Air, 16 over four days. Noanga Ups GRDC received 19. King River, 26. Many Peaks, 22. Metler, 35. Mount Barker, 81. Narrowcup West, 31. Salmon Gums Research Station 5, Stirlings North 34, and I know there's a bit of rivalry between Stirlings North and Stirlings South. Stirlings South 31, you got beaten by the North. Tamar 30, The Duke in Warrajarra 5, Wellstead 25, and Windrush 30 mils over five days. And then in the Central Wheat Belt, Ben Cubbin 6 to 7 mils, Kalani 7, Meriden 7 to 19 mils, Moorine Rock 6, Markenbuden 7 to 8 mils. Noongar and Southern Cross Airfield received seven. Westonia, eight. Wyalki, five. Wyalki South, eight. Yilgarn South, seven. In the Great Southern Region, Badgerbup, 21. Boscobel, 10. Chaming Up, 29. Cranbrook, 22. Cranham, 50. Darken, nine. Dumble Young, 36 to 67. Franklin, 38 to 58. Glenrose, 39. Highbury East, 16. Katanning, 19 to 24. Cogenup, 28. Narragin, 13 to 16. Pingerley West, 11. Quail up, 33. Tamble up, 24. Tunney, 29. Wagen, 31 to 34. Wandering, 8. Wickerpin South, 6. And I'll read Williams out because it only had two to four mills, but Ashley Weiss Farm's not too far from there. He's at Highbury, so that's between Williams and Arthur River. Not too far away, as I just mentioned, the Dumbledown GRDC received 67. 
So we're talking around about 170 k's southeast of Perth. Uh, Ashley Weiss's farm didn't quite get 67. His paddock's got between 30 and 40 mils late yesterday. He's saying, look, it's not disastrous, but at this time of year, it's just frustrating. Yeah, we're looking forward to everything to dry out a bit. Like We haven't got into any cereals yet. We've been doing canola uh, and lupins. And the cereals, especially the oats, and the, and the wheat has just taken a long time to ripen. So it's, you know, it may not do too much damage because it actually wasn't, it was very doughy and hadn't really ripened yet anyway. So hopefully, you know, we get a few hot days and this dries out and um, we walk away without too much damage. You are in that sort of heartland of where it did get very wet this year. What has that impact been like on your program? We've certainly seen um, waterlogging damage on canola and lupins. So, yeah, areas that have got too wet, we've lost some reasonably big, large patches of paddocks, which have brought the average down a bit. Any any sort of well-drained country and, and heavier country has performed extremely well. So, I, And I don't think I've seen that sort of damage in the cereals as much as the canola and lupins. So, so far, yields look very good, but just, they're just damage where it's got too wet in some sort of duplex country has just got too wet this year. So you mentioned things are still a little bit green in parts. Have you ever been almost to Christmas, what are we, late November, and it still be this green? No, no, no I can't remember it like this. It's pretty extraordinary and frustrating, to be honest, but an awesome finish, you know, like grains are plump and, you know, the quality should be there. So it's just a matter of being patient and um, doing what we can. Highbury farmer Ashley Weiss with Jessica Hayes and talking about the rain yesterday afternoon and overnight. He's only harvested about 20% of his property and he's hoping to be done by the new year. 14 to 1 and Daniel Felton is a market gardener west of Albany. He got just shy of 30 millimetres overnight, which he says will probably worsen disease on some crops, but he thinks it will help other crops over the next few hotter months. You'll get your botrytis in your strawberries for sure. We'll get black spot the early tomato settings were planted out. Uh, a while ago, the black spot will be wanting to make a comeback. You'll be getting powdery mildew pressure in your zucchinis, downy mildew in the onions, uh, the peas. A lot of that's related to overcast and cool conditions. It's not just the rainfall of if it rains and the sun comes out, yeah, but it's just the ongoing cloud and humidity that tends to really exaggerate those problems. We've certainly been seeing a fair bit of that on the south coast. Has that been something you've been noticing for, for a while now? We very much have minimum spray policy. So the only thing that's been sprayed on my farm this season is the early tomatoes. There's been downy mildew present in the onions and the peas. And I've got powdery in my early zucchinis. We probably tend to just try and plant extra crops of things like zucchinis rather than have a heavy spray program. Usually our early tomatoes and strawberries will have to be sprayed once or twice in the cycle. But we're just targeting small niche markets for a lot of our lines. So we try and... You avoid a lot of chemical use. Uh, you do lose a bit, but I find by keeping your plant health up using organic fertilisers and, and other things, you tend to avoid a lot of really significant economic damage. So what other growers do you suspect will be very affected by this most recent rain and by some of those diseases you've mentioned there? 
Well, obviously your vineyards, they certainly get the botrytis in their bunches. They'll need to be getting their, their sprays on there. And then you've got your powdery mildew, your downy mildew. So they'll be using their sulfurs and various things just as part of their normal routine. They might just get in a bit earlier, straight after the rain, if they feel the disease press is necessary. Obviously, several local strawberry growers would have taken a hit. There'll be a lot of fruit quality problems for a couple of days. Farming in Albany, they're used to, to that uh, at this time of the year, but it's still a very significant short-term cash hit. How are your strawberries looking at the moment? We just do them for a few little local niche markets. So, yeah, there's some botrytis there. As I said, they haven't been sprayed. I haven't seen powdery mildew. doesn't mean it's not there. They're, they're very patchy because some trees have got in under the drain in sections and robbing all the nutrients. So the best plants are magnificent. The worst plants are, are pretty terrible, but they're only a very small part of what we do to be honest. So, and I'm a bit busy to really pick them at the moment, a bit short staff. So, you know, I'm, I'm not unhappy with it. Young's signing market gardener, Daniel Felton, speaking to Angus McIntosh about what the overnight rain means for his crops and for other farms in the Great Southern. 11 to 1. And the Livestock and Rural Transport Association of WA is calling for a little patience on the roads as truck movements treble to help get the grain crop off. President David Fife says if you have plans to be driving around the wheat belt over the school holidays, you need to be aware that at this time of year, the trucks are longer and heavier than usual. He says some tourists just aren't used to sharing the road with a big grain truck. We find a lot of motorists that are in the city are used to travelling on freeways behind heavy vehicles, maybe doing 80, 90 kilometres an hour. Out here, a heavy vehicle can be doing 50 kilometres an hour up a hill and in a very short time it can be doing 90 down the other side. The motorist is becoming impatient trying to work out when to pass or they sit very, very close behind waiting for the truck driver up the front to indicate to come around. I personally think that if you need to be guided past a vehicle you're probably not that confident with your driving maybe you should drop back a bit or pull up and have a rest and let the heavy vehicle get on its way a lot of guys will try to bring cars around just to get rid of them to make it a bit safer because you do get very nervous when you have cars within a few meters behind a 36 meter road train and um in one minute you see it, the next minute you can't, you don't know what they're going to do and whether or not they can judge the distance when they do pull out. I think what it is is they don't quite understand. The car driver just wants to get past and I think they might believe that by being very close that the driver will see them better. But what it does is, you know, as a driver, you, you become... Um, a bit worried because you're not sure what they're going to do and it's it's unnerving to have someone so close because road conditions change in, in our great southern area. Um, there's a lot of drop-offs on the edge of the road. Vehicles move around fairly quickly and um, you just don't need someone that close to you. David Fife, President of the Livestock and Rural Transporters Association of WA with Asher Couch. Nine to one, not far away from a wrap of the Miche cattle market just before the news at one today. First, though, believe it or not, you could soon be eating stone fruit grown in the heart of WA's Pilbara region. The first successful crop of stone fruit has been harvested at Newman as part of a unique trial by the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. 
Chris Shalfert manages Deep Herd's Transforming Agriculture in the Pilbara Project. He says they've shown stone fruit do grow well there, but more research needs to be done before anything progresses to a commercial scale. You know, your traditional stone fruit growing areas are the more temperate climates and, you know, in WA, for example, it's a, the southwest of the state, you know, in, in the Perth Hills and, and right down Manjimup Way and places like that. So those areas still, you know, Perth still gets some quite hot summer days, but it's really the those winter months and, and you know, what we refer to chill hours or chill portions. It's a, a measure of time below certain temperatures that triggers those those dormancy responses in and the type of fruits like stone fruit or grapes for example prompts them to go into that dormancy phase and then and then brings them out of that dormancy phase and triggers the the flowering and bud burst and subsequent fruit growth so normally yes the southern parts of the state are a bit more suitable to to production of these fruits but there have been a whole number of varieties of stone fruit and they they are referred to low chill stone fruit that have been bred for um, locations that don't get as cold over those winter months and that's effectively um, what we've selected for this trial. What results have you seen from this trial so far? Yeah, so certainly in the in the first year or two, um, the trees were were doing a few funny things, and and it's not uncommon um, with stone fruit that if they don't get that chill requirement, those uh, enough hours of that cold temperature, that uh, they won't necessarily you know drop all their leaves as as a normal deciduous tree should do. Sometimes when they, when the temperature warms up again in the spring, they might start flowering, but that flowering can be protracted over quite a long period of time. Whereas if they've had a, a good solid amount of, of chill portions that they need for that variety, you would expect that uh, when flowering commences, it's, it's over a shorter period of time. So the, as the fruit develops, your, your harvest is over you know, quite a, a narrow window. Yeah, so when is the harvesting window up here then? Yeah, so with these varieties that we harvested this year, we started picking some in mid-October uh, mid, in, into late October. And I guess one of the other things that we were really looking for and, and wanted to understand was, in fact, you know, when is that time that this fruit will be ready? Because some of our other work where we're looking at the market opportunities, you know, identifies the earlier that we can we can get fruit in the market. It might mean that we don't have to rely on imports from the US and, and uh, other uh, international locations. So we can produce this product in Western Australia. Potentially there's a, a market right across Australia that, that could take this product. I guess that leads me to the next question. Um, what is the potential of this trial in terms of being a viable business model? It's still early days yet and you know we're getting these early positive indications that um, we can produce fruit. I guess there's a, a bit more R&D that needs to happen around how we can possibly push that that harvesting window a bit earlier and there's a whole lot of other varieties out there that you know may actually be um, better suited to to the soil type that we have to the you know, those specific climatic conditions of Newman so that would that would constitute some further work looking at that coupled with you know a bit of economic analysis around you know the cost of producing in that location and the supply chains and and the cost of getting product to market. Chris Shelford, who works at Deep Herd, he is the manager of Transforming Agriculture in the Pilbara Project, and he was speaking to Georgia Hargreaves about Newman's first successful stone fruit harvest. And Chris has been involved with a variety of irrigated horticulture trials in the region over the last three years. 
5-2-1 to the market and compared to last week, numbers were down 700 at today's cattle sale at Muche. 1,952 was the final number. John Testro has been at the Muche sale yards all morning. John, can you run through the details? Good afternoon, Belinda. Uh, market uh, split today between local and pastoral cattle. First time that we've seen pretty well even numbers on these, but uh, so with mixed results. Pastoral uh, young cattle down 10 to 20 cents with pastoral yearling steers, 330 to 3.96. And uh, the pastoral uh, yearling heifers, 275 to 400, down by 20 cents. The local side of the job, uh, local weaner steers, 3.76 to 7.30, up by 30 cents. Weaner heifers uh, back a little bit today with uh, 360 to 652 down by 50 cents overall the yearling steers remain very firm at 398 to 452 and the yearling heifers better selection at 436 to 476 up by 20 cents under the manufacturing cattle the grown steers 320 to 470 down 30 cents and the grown heifers 360 to 398 were down by six pretty good sale, uh, cow sale today your best prime heavy 296 to 348 very firm with score two medium weight to processors at 200 to 296, again firm, and store cows to feeders, 262 to 296, uh, firm all the way through and a very strong sale on those. The bull market, uh, strong again, prime heavy, 300 to 358, they were up by 15. The uh, light to feeders, 300 to 645, very firm, and the light to live export, 375 to uh, 500, again firm. So uh, overall, not a bad sale. But uh, let's just run through what is happening in uh, in the cattle market at the moment. It was a busy week last week with an extra 3,000 heads sold throughout the WA sale yards, and that total over 8,000, and this week should be well over 11,000 plus, so putting some pressure on the market. At last week's Boyan Up store and Wiener sales, we saw Wiener uh, beef bread steers firm to 10 cents easier with... Uh, Wiener steers on Wednesday averaging 6.37 and Friday 5.95, but a premium is being paid by feedlotters for the Wednesday Wiener cattle as the work's been done for them. And the quality is uh, quite obviously a little bit uh, better there as well too. Wiener heifers Wednesday average 5.41 and Friday 5.25, both sales down 20 cents. But the uh, cattle in real demand are the 400 to 500 kilo steers that uh, average 541 on Wednesday and 490 on Friday uh, for the beef types with uh, both sales near 20 cents dearer and pushed by strong interstate inquiry. Freezing yearling steers were also up 20 cents to average 468. But this week uh, we'll see 1,700 wieners at uh, Boyan Up on Wednesday with the well-muscled uh, and high-yielding uh, Charolais cattle, a feature breed. There'll be 1,000 fresh and cattle at Boyne Up on Friday and nearly 3,500 store cattle here at Musha on Friday that's starting at 10am. All that along with uh, today's sale and the normal trade sales at Boyne Up and Mount Barker. So you can see that there's some fair numbers around. I can't envisage the rates coming back uh, much as some of the uh, state's leading breeders are still yet to offer and their cattle will be very highly sought. But good luck to both buyers and uh, sellers as well. That's all from me for today. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you very much for going through all that, John. And John's back at Mushay for you tomorrow with a wrap of the sheep market. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Good news for the economy with Australia's borders set to reopen for international students and skilled workers. But will it be enough? 
As anti-vaccine rallies continue across the country, police report a spike in threats to elected officials, with some worried they're not safe. And Chinese officials say missing tennis player Peng Shui is safe and well, but is she? You'll hear those stories and more coming up on The World Today. It's been great to catch up with you this afternoon. Enjoy your afternoon listening to the ABC. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.